I'm going to share a brief story and uh, maybe a little introduction is helpful and then we'll go into the passage. I'm going to, um, in fact, it was interesting seeing Shalanda Boyer. Where's Shalanda at? In the back there. Um, many years ago, and this is pertinent, unfortunately, still today um, because of some of the racial tensions that are occurring throughout our country and uh, my wife Lisa and I had moved into uh, the west side of Akron. I was a Cuyahoga Falls fireman, um, and we lived in a, a very mixed neighborhood. In fact, it was most of the younger families were black, most of the older families were white. It's uh, what integration jokingly is called sometimes the time from which the first black family moves in till the last white family moves out, not far from Bookdale High School. And uh, it, it's, it's a right that we have to live where we want, and that's what it means to be American. And unfortunately, the patterns of uh, where we live are uh, still segregated uh, today, although we're making progress. This was 1990, and I uh, worked at Cuyahoga Falls Fire. There was not a single African-American employee in the city of Cuyahoga Falls at that time. Not a single one, full-time. Uh, we had some temporary workers at work in the summer. So, so I was living in this integrated neighborhood, and then every third day I'd work a 24-hour shift in an all-white neighborhood. And my fellow firefighters would kind of tease me and you know, uh, make some comments. Every once in a while there'd be something on the news, and one of my coworkers would say, Hey, Dwayne, you've got to come check this out. Your neighbor's on the news. And I'd go in and and there'd be a, a black gentleman who's being arrested or charged with murder or something, and they'd laugh and think that was funny, but that's, you know, firehouse humor. So as I began to uh, participate in Promise Keepers, they talk about the importance of reconciliation and white folks being in positions where they submit to black leadership, that not just white folks and black folks coming together, together and then white folks calling the shots, which if you see most ministries today and even today, there's a lot of white-led ministries to the inner city and not as many where there's black-led ministries and white folks come and, and uh, serve and support. So even as uh, what Brad is doing in Haiti, coming underneath you know, other ministries and working to serve people is, uh, is a good lesson for us. So, so uh, I wanted to become an Akron firefighter. And my, my mission in doing that was Akron Fire Department was about a third African-American and I wanted to work under a lieutenant or work at a house, firehouse, that was, uh, uh, had black leadership. And uh, so I took the civil service test, and uh, this was actually, I took the civil service test in 1988 and failed it. I had never flunked a civil service test before, and so my wife and my mother said, obviously that was not God's will. Well, I'd, when someone tells me something's not doable, it just makes me want to do it more. So in 1990, I took the test again, and uh, this time, uh, I'm sorry, 1990, I took it and failed it. 1992, I took it again, and I passed it. And I was like fifth on the list to be hired. And they called me in, and they do a number of things from psychological tests, physical tests, and so forth. And, uh, and then you get a physical. The last thing they do is give you a physical uh, because that costs them several hundred dollars to send you through all the heart and uh, tests. And so I showed up for the physical knowing that there was one minor problem. My vision was 2200. And this was back, uh, LASIK surgery was still fairly new uh, and it was very expensive. And so people didn't get uh, their eyes fixed. And if you flunked the vision test, you were immediately disqualified. And the vision standard was 2060. 
So I was going into this knowing that I was probably not going to succeed. But I wanted to do it anyways because I felt this was God's will. It was God's will. I told my wife and my mother, somehow God will work it out because I'm committed to wanting to submit to black leadership. And so the nurse took me in to do the vision test, and I had my glasses on, and she was getting ready to administer it, and someone called her name, and she had to leave the room. And so I'm in the room there and waiting, just kind of ta da 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 and finally I realized I started looking at the screen, and I began to memorize it. <clears throat> I said, God, this must be your answer for my prayers. And so she came back in and asked me to take my glasses off. And, and I must tell you, I deceived and I acted like I was having a little trouble reading it. And I was smart enough to read down about 2040 because I had to be wearing glasses for some reason. I couldn't just act like I knew the 2020 and say it to the 2020. And I was like, ah, I can't really pick it out. And I gave a couple letters and she goes, okay, that's fine. Put your glasses on. She said, now read the last line. I said, oh yeah, and read it. And I said, thank you. Jesus. One of the reasons I like the Bible, and I will get back to that story, because this, this story here influenced how I uh, went for it. I, I then went on to get the rest of the physical. Um, one of the reasons I like the Bible is because the characters in it are real, and the stories, I, I think Peter referred to it as the sort of the TMZ, the, the last chapters. Is the, the, you, there's, you, you see this humanity and this fleshliness, and yet God's purposes, God's will goes forward in spite of human sin or human shortcomings. So let's look at uh, Genesis 32. And I'm going to read through the first part of it fairly quickly, and I want to get to the uh, last third of the chapter, because I think that's where the, the meat, at least uh, for me, is. Jacob also, and this is verse 1, Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named the place Mahanan. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him, to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maidservants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you. Oh yeah, and 400 men are with him. Now remember, Esau was the man's man in that family. You know, Jacob was kind of his mom's favorite, a mama's boy. Esau was the hunter. He was, he was red. He was hairy. He was, and he's got 400 men that are going to be the greeting committee as Jacob is now trying to reenter the promised land. So verse 7 now makes a little sense. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. He's planning a survival plan at this point. Remember, 
he went on this, this is 20 years later, but he went on this journey out of the promised land up to Haran because he had outmanipulated his brother, stolen the blessing, so to speak, and his brother had, had made peace with saying, once my daddy dies, I'm going to kill that little guy. And the mama said, you know, Rachel said, uh, or I'm sorry, Rebecca said, go on, up, up, and stay up there. Go visit uh, my family. And uh, uh, her brother Laban managed to out Jacob, Jacob for about 20 years until Jacob got tired and now he's coming back. And as he's coming back, he's going to have to face what he ran from 20 years previously. Oftentimes, people think about getting a divorce or quitting a job. Oftentimes, we're not content. And we think a geographical cure, a different person, or a, a situation, if we can just change our situation, we'll be okay. And what we discover is contentment doesn't come because the problem is not with the situation, it's not with the other person. It's often that we haven't settled issues in our heart. And fear and realities have a way of bringing you face to face with yourself in ways that are not always easy. But if we can stay in there, we'll be beneficial. So, then Jacob prayed, verse 9, Oh God, my father, Abraham, of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O oh Lord, who said to me, as rehearsing with God, how many of us have done that? Remember, Lord, he says, go back to your country. This is what you said to me, Lord. Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I've become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, a gift. 200 female goats and 20 male goats. 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, to whom do you belong and where are you going? And who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are gifts sent to my Lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds, you are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead later. And later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over 
all of his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And I'm going to pause right there. It's important to understand Jacob's mindset, and I don't think it's that hard for us. When we get into predicaments, our brain's going to overdrive, and we start thinking of solutions, or we get into a jam. You know, what am I going to say to my spouse or my parents or my neighbor? How do I explain this? And it's human nature to try to figure out a way to get out of a jam. You know, the Bible says very clearly that God is a very present help in a time of trouble. But as Dallas Willard says, so is a lie. Right? Think about it. When you're in a jam and you're trying to figure, oh, you know, I, 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 I forgot to call you back, or I, I didn't see on my cell phone this happened, or, or you have an explanation. And it's, we call them little white lies. They're things we do to kind of smooth the, the social graces. And Jacob, Jacob, you know, one who grasps the heel, it's literally what it means, but it, it from there can mean manipulator, or supplanter. You know, Jacob has spent his lifetime being that guy that's a, a schmoozer and knows how to, how to get things and, 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 and work the angles, so to speak. And now after 20 years, he's on a 20-year journey off the path from the promised land where God, as he just said in the prayer, remember God, you promised me this would all be mine. But because of how he got it, he had to leave the promised land. And for 20 years, God was at work. He ended up with four wives, 11 sons, and he has quite a bit of wealth. And he's getting ready to come back to the promised land. But his problem is not that he is geographically in the wrong place. As he's getting ready to return to where God has promised him that his future lies, there's a deeper issue. It's not a geographic misplacement. It's that his heart is still not fully yielded. He's still trying to figure out a way to manipulate and, and, and make this thing happen, make God's will happen. Anybody know that feeling of wanting to help God do his will? You know, a young lady meets a guy who's not a Christian, but he's such a cool guy and she just really likes him. And, you know, maybe it's time for missionary dating and God will help lead him to Christ if I just spend time with him. Pastor Peter, can you bless that? Right? Or it's a business deal. It's, it's not quite right, but you know what? It'll have such a return. If I can make this money, I, 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 I will, in fact, I'll more than tithe. I'll help with the new church building center or whatever. And we begin oftentimes too late to discover that those compromises were rationalizations that God has to confront. And there's something in us that has to die if we really want to receive God's blessing. And so, at this point, it says Jacob was alone. Do you know that the first time in the Bible that something was not good, you know when that was? It might be tempting to think 
that it came after the fall. But that would be inaccurate. Before the fall, in Genesis 2, God looks at Adam and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. And so Jacob has cleared everybody across the river Jabbok. And at this point, he's alone with himself and his thoughts. But ultimately, God is present. And at that moment, verse 23, after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for his daybreak. The light is dawning. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Because we're Americans, our names are not always laden with meaning, or we don't ask when we meet people, oh, what does your name mean? Or we don't... But in the, in the Hebrew culture, to name something was to identify it in, in your character and who you are and your future was in your name. And so Jacob, you know, one who grabbed by the heel, you know, the birth of the twins, he was the second one, he came out, but he was holding onto the heel. <laughs> and that came to mean supplanter, manipulator, one who trips someone up. You know, you can knock someone at some tackle. When a tackle just barely catches a a running back headed for a touchdown, he, he just clips his heel, he stumbles. God gave man the first responsibility in the garden, was to name the animals. Um, when God spoke, he said, let there be light. And no one in the universe knew what light was or had ever been, or at least human beings didn't, and light came into being. Naming and being are intertwined in God. In today's world, we have what we call image management. We, have, we front. We know how to name stuff. We sell stuff, and we oversell stuff because the name and the reality there's usually a gap. When Jacob first left the promised land because he had stolen the blessing from his brother, he didn't repent. He was trying to compensate for the consequences of his sin. What had been the promise originally? It had been to his mother that the older will serve the younger. And then Jacob had had not even stolen the birthright from his brother. He told his brother, if if you're going to, you're hungry, 
He said, I'm famished. He said, okay, sign over your birthright to me and I'll, I'll give you some soup. And it says Esau despised his birthright. So in many ways, Jacob had legitimately, but somewhat selfishly, gotten the birthright. And the birthright was that you could receive the blessing. But when his father is at the end of his life and he's dying, Jacob deceives and puts the lambskin on his arms and he comes in, he's got his brother's clothes on and the mom fixed the soup. And think about this, when someone's dying, that's a, that's a, a very vulnerable and critical time. Yet many of us have experienced being in the hospitals as a pastor. I've watched families be together and people try to speak last words of comfort. And so here's Jacob at the moment his father is near death and vulnerable because he can't see that well, he steals the blessing. And then when Esau comes in, Esau screams because he finds out he's lost the blessing. And he's going to kill his brother. So now this act is going to lead to murder. And Jacob, instead of facing the consequent repenting, heads north and he's gone for 20 years. And now he's coming back and he has to face the consequences that have been unrepented of, unprocessed. And he's trying to manipulate again by sending gifts to his brother and doing everything he can do. And this stranger turns out to be God, could be a pre-incarnate experience of Christ, could be just angels, but whoever this being is, this being has him And he has the being. And he won't let go. All night, it's been foggy, it's it's dark, he doesn't know who this is. And the guy touches his hip, wrenches his hip, somewhere in that wrestling, he is now handicapped. But he won't let go. He's not so much wrestling now. The day is breaking, he won't let go. And the being says, let me go. He says, bless me. Well, to be blessed, you have to own who you are. To be blessed officially, it's not about pretending. It's not being a wannabe. It's about being who you are. And at that point, he says, you know what I realize? I've had trouble sleeping all night. I've sent all these gifts to my brother. I still, I, I know I've done everything I can do and it's not enough. I need to tell you something. I'm Jacob. I'm a manipulator. The Bible calls that confession. Confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. Or in 1 John it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, a lot of us Christians know how to technically get forgiveness. We say, I'm sorry. I did that once with Lisa. I didn't want to have an argument and she was giving me the silent treatment and I just said, I said, look, I'm sorry. So now let's talk. And she had the nerve to ask me what I was sorry about. And I had the confusion to realize I didn't know. So I really wasn't repenting. I was just using an apology as a means to try to manipulate her to talk with me. And that was why she wasn't talking to me, because I wasn't listening to hear what was really wrong in that moment. And when Jacob owns his identity... At that point, when we repent, when we say, I'm a sinner, I screwed up, 
I did this wrong. God responds and says, no, you're not a sinner. You're a son of God. Your sin is behind you. It's forgotten. And at that moment, Jacob becomes Israel, one who's wrestled with God, one who is prevailing, one who has a future. Now, a couple things you wouldn't know about this passage, and it's interesting, and then I'll finish up and tell the rest of the story of when I was at the fire department. In Hebrew, there's some pretty cool things going on here. The name Jacob, which by the way, I don't know if you guys know this, but in the New Testament, Jacob, the book of James is really not the book of James. That's how it gets translated. It's the book of Jacob. In every place in the New Testament where Jacob is translated, if it refers to Jacob the patriarch, it's Jacob. It's the exact same word. And if it refers to James the brother of Jesus or James the apostle, it's James. Uh, And there's probably a lot of reasons why they did it, but it was not because of the King James Bible. I thought it was, but that's not accurate. Jabbok, the river, Jabbok. Jacob, Jabbok, it sounds similar, doesn't it? There's there's a, a play on words here. And and the ford of Jabbok, which ran into the Jordan River, it it literally means emptying. The the Jabbok empties itself into the river. And so it's so interesting. Jacob is one who grasps the heel. Jacob is one who tries to control situations. Jacob has a hold on life, but he's white-knuckling it because he's always conning. Like guys in my neighborhood, they have to always look over their shoulder they're getting over on people. And when you lie or you do things, you got to always remember what you said. It's a tough life. But to release, to empty yourself, open your hands, whether we do it in worship or we do it in life and how we live. In fact, the uh, kenosis passage, Philippians 2, it's a great, great passage. It says, have this attitude in yourself that was in Christ Jesus, who regarded equality with God something not to be grasped, held on to. But what did he do instead? But emptied himself. And at that point, God honored him and gave him a name above every name that which every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. So Jabbok and Jacob is a play on words. At this place, Jacob is now releasing not just the being but he's releasing his need to be Jacob, the manipulator, the guy in control. And he's saying, God, I'm ready to face my brother. And what will be, will be. Much like Jesus in the garden. Not what I want. This isn't my choice. If there's any other way than the cross, but not my will be done, yours be done. And that is the battle for all of us. Can we, in our humanity, trust God at his word? See, a lot of us profess faith, but when push comes to shove, we live like at least agnostics. I won't say atheists, but we, we take control. And God still works through Jacob, but it's not enough for him to just come back into the promised land. God wants him to come back in the promised land and to be able to trust that it's not Jacob who's going to be his protector. It truly is God. The only other thing that was interesting to me there's a word when it says he wrestled. The, uh, the word there is avek, which is, uh, again, 
uh, a word that's close to, um, it's, it's, it's a word that uh, it means dust. And we talk about the uh, uh, scripture, dust thou art, to dust returneth. That's what uh, God said to Adam after the curse. Uh, Psalm 103, David says, uh, uh, he remembers our frame that we're but dust. Genesis 2.7 says, out of the dust, God made Adam and breathed into his nostrils and he became a living soul. There's something about being human and having flesh and being incarnational and being grounded and being earthy and, and humus, humility. Uh, humus means soil. It's where we get the Latin word for humility. It means that we're spirit, but we're also earthy. And sometimes we want to curse our earthiness, but it takes the earthiness, it takes the wrestling, it takes Jacob not being able to sleep all night to help him connect with his true heart. And at that point, he asked the being, what is your name? And God in his mercy, in his mystery, says, why do you ask? It's kind of like when Jesus, someone asked Good teacher, why, you know, can you, and Jesus said, why do you call me good? It wasn't because Jesus was denying that he's good. He really wanted to, why do you call me good? If God is the only one who's good, why are you acknowledging I'm God? This being who's wrestled with Jacob all night, Jacob asks, but God is not going to let himself be named by Jacob. Because to name something is to have some control over it. He named Jacob Israel. That's God's view of him. God sees you and I as the sons and daughters of God, that we are his family, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. He's proud of us. He wants us to represent. We're ambassadors for Christ. Is that how you see yourself? And so God won't answer his question, but as he leaves... He names the place Peniel, which means face of God. He gets to name the place, but he doesn't get to name God. Yahweh. They wouldn't even say the name. Y-H-W-H. God is always greater and a mystery in how he works in our lives in the real world. So at the fire department, at the office of the uh, doctor, I'm there, and they go to take my blood pressure, and my blood pressure was a little high. Now, I have never, ever had blood pressure problems. And the nurse looks at me and goes, eh, it's not too high, but it's, it's borderline. She said, I need to check it again. Let's, let's wait a couple minutes. She walked out of the room, and so I get a second chance. Be by myself, like Jacob. But I really wasn't by myself. I'm thinking. Do I really want, and this is when I thought about the story of Jacob, do I really want to manipulate my way into a job where, frankly, I was already at about seven years in at Chicago Falls Fire, so I was taking about an $8,000 pay cut. I was going from 32000 to twenty-four. We had two kids. A third was on the way. And I kept thinking, I know this is God's will. I know this is God's will. But can I trust God to open up a way, or do I feel like I got to do it? And I knew, I knew at that moment, if I didn't confess that I had lied, if I open the door. I would never know whether it was my will or God's will. I had to surrender at that moment. And when the lady came back in, I said, ma'am, I said, I think I know what's going on here with my blood pressure. And she goes, oh, really? She goes, what is it? Now, of course, this is, you want to talk about a self-serving man. I go, it's your fault. 
<laughs> I go, I mean, I mean, you know, and I'm starting to stumble over myself because it's awkward to confess. So I'm trying not to, I, I, I said, well, you see, I'm a Christian and, and, and she's looking at me like, and that's making your blood pressure. I said, no, 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 I, you left me alone in the other room too long. And I, I, you know, it was a pitiful apology or pitiful acknowledgement, but it, it at least was an acknowledgement. I said, you need to have me do the eye test again. And we went back and my vision was 2200. And I came home and I talked with Lisa and five days later, I got a letter from the civil service, actually about three days later, it said, said I had been removed from the eligibility list for the Akron Fire Department and if I had any complaints or any reason to believe that their physical exam was inaccurate, I had to contact Dick Pamley, who was the service director at the time, and I had five days to do it. And so, of course, I wrote a letter and I made an appeal based upon their vision standard. And one of the things I love, this is how God works. In 1992, was the first year they had put the Americans with Disabilities Act into play and what that said, and it only applied to municipalities at that point. It did not apply to private sector yet. It said, if you are denied a job upon the basis of a physical deficit, it is incumbent upon the municipality to prove that you are incapable of doing the job without minor modifications. Their big concern was they don't want you wearing glasses when you have your SCBA face piece on because the stems of the glasses would... Uh, allow smoke to get in your mask and you could be incapacitated. Well, I wore contacts at that point, but they were not okayed yet by uh, the fire so- National Fire Association. Bottom line is, we went through about a six-month process. Threats of lawsuits, I never threatened anything, but other guys who flunked the vision thing did. They called me, and Dick Pamley called me, and he said, he said, Dwayne, I had a seven-year history with good fire department. He said, what would you, do- what would you change if you were, and I explained to him why the system could work and men could wear, men and women could wear uh, contacts underneath their face piece, and they changed the standards for Akron Fire, and I got hired six months later than I would have liked because they hired another group before us. But interestingly, one of the guys that was in the first group that got hired before me caught AIDS on the job. They don't know quite how he got exposed to HIV, but it came on the job. And had I manipulated, had I not confessed, I could have been that guy. I could have been in that situation where God would have had to get my attention in a whole different way. But what I knew that I knew when I got on the fire department was I knew God opened the door because my captain I went to and spoke, I explained to him, he said, why are you leaving the falls? You're taking a pay cut. You do run less calls. It's an easier job. That doesn't make any sense to me. And I started to explain to him about my desire to work in an integrated department. And I heard later, he went back and told one of the guys, he said, what an idiot. He said, that guy wants to work in a, he said, with the black folk. He said, I'm going to stick him at station six, and he can have all the black people he wants all the time along. And I was the first guy that had ever, at that time, went directly from rookie school, station six. I worked with, of, of the six in the crew, four of them were black. My lieutenant was black. My captain was black. And we served in the black community, and I was there for five years, and it was the it was a mile and a half from our house. It was the greatest thing I could have ever experienced. And uh, it was what eventually led to Lisa and I starting the ministry that we started back in 1997. Let me say a prayer here, and then we'll open it up for some interview. Lord, Lord, thank you that when we read your scripture, it's not just to read nice stories, but it is to be instructive 
as to how we can live, how we can trust you, how we can know that like Jacob, we are tempted, God, to feel we have to control our circumstances. We have to work things, manipulate. If we don't look out for ourselves, who will? And then we remember, God, that you are our loving Heavenly Father. You are the master chess player. You are behind the scenes. And even when we sin or we make bad choices, you will still bring good out of it. What the enemy intends for evil, you will work for good for your children. That if you be for us, who can be against us? Lord, we know those things, but we don't want to receive those things passively. We want to cooperate with you. We want to obey you. To trust and obey, there is no other way. And we see the rightness and the goodness of being your children. Now, Lord, teach us to rest in following you with the utmost confidence that if we follow Jesus, whatever comes our way, we'll have the grace and the strength to deal with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Lisa, you want to come up here too? She gives better answers than I do, or she's got more. She's the one that can tell you about the challenges we faced. So thank you very much for yeah. sharing the word with us. And as, uh, as she's coming up, maybe give us then a brief explanation now. Serving in the fire department in the neighborhood, being given that assignment, you made an observation about the churches That's in right. that area. So what was kind of the observation about the church community? And, and this is the challenge we face everywhere. The ch- churches have become commuter institutions. So if you look, in, when people used to live in villages and small communities or uh, in rural areas, the church would be in the center of the community, and the, a lot of the social life revolved around the church. Now, for most of us, the only time we get together is maybe a, a couple hours a week on a Sunday morning or uh, for a Bible study or choir practice uh, or, or worship band practice. And so there, what I began to see in the neighborhood I was serving in, and we began to go to church in this neighborhood over in Summit Lake, and that was also a neighborhood I was the, we were the second engine company in, um, I saw that there were 14 churches and there were also 14 bars and carryouts. And as I began to visit some of those churches and talk to some of the people in the neighborhood, what I discovered is the bars and carryouts were all supported locally um, and a large percentage of their customers came from the neighborhood. So, you know, it, it always bothered me if, if I asked people, which, which do you think had more influence on a neighborhood, 14 bars and carryouts or 14 churches? Everybody says bars and carryouts and they're right. But that's not because my theology is not comfortable with that, but the sociology is accurate. The, the bars and the carryouts are open seven days a week, six days a week if they don't have Sunday license. And they are in the fabric of the community. The people that live there, they are integrated into the community. The churches, on the other hand, bricks and mortar touch the ground. They're in the neighborhood, but they're not of the neighborhood. And so as Lisa and I were worshiping and got involved with this church, which is a Quaker, uh, it's evangelical friends, but it at least connected to the Anabaptist tradition, which I appreciate. Um, we ended up, because of a, a seeing the inability of our middle-class church to interact with a, what was largely a, a, a poor, lower-income neighborhood, I suggested to Lisa that perhaps if we lived in the neighborhood, We'd be there seven days a week, and we could really have an influence on the community and be a part of the neighborhood. And for some reason, some reason, she did not say, praise the Lord, my husband is such a godly man. Let me follow him. 
Let me follow him as we do the Lord's will. It's the worst idea ever. Oh, here I'll get it for you. And maybe pick up the story from there. So, um, how are you processing? Truly, it was the worst idea ever. <laughs> I really felt that. I really felt that. And I'm all about missions and serving the Lord. And that truly was my heart. But at that moment, I felt like the call to motherhood, we had three small children under the age of six, was just really in opposition to his call to the ministry. And in my head, and truly my heart, I could not reconcile that at all. I mean, it was, okay, we're just going to, we could come in and do mission work, UVBS, food pantry, really truly care. And you can't care about people in those ways, but live there, really? Um, I didn't know anyone who ever did that before. Um, and very honestly, um, as I started to process this whole call, um, there weren't too many people that thought it was a great idea either. So as we talked, as we talked to other Christians, so when she says we didn't know anybody that did that before, we didn't have a mission agency. We were not, uh, you know, going overseas, which would have made sense to people. We were just saying we felt a conviction. To, we were saying I felt a conviction <laughs> to live in this high crime at the time it was the highest crime, uh, second poorest neighborhood in Akron, Summit Lake, and we were already living in an integrated neighborhood. So our kids were having, uh, in fact. Uh, Shalanda's uh, brother Mike was best friends with our oldest son Joshua and, and our kids spent the night in the homes of all of our neighbors and, and they, they were having this integrated good experience of living in a good working class middle class neighborhood so this was really taking it another step and so the wrestling with God began <laughs> yeah. truly yes, it did, it did. So. Mm-hmm. and then once you moved in and made your home there what were the sort of it's the early life of South Street Ministries in terms of being available yeah. to a community. If I, if I can do it quickly, and then I, I invite you to share this, Lisa, because we made a commitment not... Our, our focus wasn't the Great Commission first. Our focus was to live the Great Commandments, to love God and love our neighbors. So we, we were told if we went in to plant a church, the inner city's not suffering from a lack of churches because the model is largely a commuter institution. It was more plant the mission, let's live in a neighborhood. And I just call it sanctified self-interest. Whatever we did for our kids, we just grabbed neighborhood kids and we would do it. It just kind of doubled the number of kids. If we went to the zoo, we had six kids with us and our kids all got to bring a friend. But before we moved in, Lisa did something that was very powerful and it relates to the Jacob story. As she was praying, she reached a point where she said, you know, I feel like my husband has this call. She, she waited about four years. So from 1992 till 1996 is when we found our house. So during those four years, it was hard. I mean, she, she went and sought counseling. And then her counselor says, now, wait a second. Let me, your husband wants to move in the highest crime, second poorest neighborhood, and you're coming to me because you're not comfortable wanting to do that? She goes, that's right. She goes, is your husband in counseling? <laughs> you know? <laughs> No, I think we have the wrong person here. But, but that's why I'm saying there were many Christians who said a lot of well-meaning things, but aren't there, aren't there black ministries that can reach these communities? Are, are you guys, you know, why do you have to live in the neighborhood? But our commitment was that this was, that we had to immerse our lives in the life of the community if we were to have an impact. And so Lisa finally, she gave up one day. She just said, 
said, I, I see that God has called you and I feel like I'm not a submissive wife. Let's just move into the neighborhood. She goes, I'm, 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 I'm ready. And what I recognized, and normally I take advantage of this, if I get to choose the movie or the restaurant, I win, I like to win. So, so I'm like, oh, you know, and then all of a sudden it hit me. There wasn't much joy or much of an affirmation from Lisa. And so I looked at her and I said, honey, I said, if, if God has called us, he's called both of us. And so this was one of those rare times I was wise not to take advantage of her. She was yielding. She was saying, you win, I'm tired. She was not saying yes to God or yes to me. And our marriage would have suffered greatly had we moved without me stepping back and saying, I have complete confidence and you have complete veto power. I never worry about you being an unsubmissive wife. If God's called us until you hear the call, we're not going anywhere. And that was a big help. And so at that point, I don't know if you want to say anything, but... It, the smartest it, thing you ever said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, truly. Because it just really... Heard the um, dumbest thing you've ever said. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> And they were both related to the same situation. But, but again, yielding, this, this, is, this is that thing of trusting God. If God has called us, I didn't have to manipulate her or, or use husband tactics to get my way. So, but, but so the day-to-day stuff, what, what, what was after we get in? Uh, she did mother. We were homeschooling, so we did stuff. We started a tutoring thing because the kids, the, our kids, we're teaching our kids to read. Pretty soon we're teaching the neighborhood kids to read. And we, bikes get stolen, so we started collecting old bikes and we turned it into a bike shop. And instead of fixing the bikes up for the kids, we told the kids, you got to fix them up. you you got to earn these bikes. And we just did stuff. I just, we just went wherever they would accept us. I, 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 we didn't have a church building, so we started a Bible study in our home, and that grew into South Street church and uh, South Street Ministries. I, I would go to the jail. I would go to a sex offender treatment center. I went to the community health center where there was HIV at risk counseling, and they would let me, you know, I, I'd go all these places where you, they felt like you really couldn't screw up the people that were there. It was like they just said, oh yeah, you're willing to come and do it. And, and so doors opened, and we became immersed in the ministry, and I actually quit the fire department because I, I just felt that that was what we're supposed to do. And that was another reason why she'll get credit in heaven someday for not divorcing me. <laughs> She's the, she is the saint of this operation, just in case you haven't figured that out. So, Any other uh, things you think of, or any questions, Peter, as far as what we do or how we do it? Or? Sure. Along the lines of what you do, so how did that evolve now to where today, what do you see, maybe, Lisa, you can share the, yeah. some of the primary needs or the sources of pain in mm-hmm. the community? Mm-hmm. Um. Even from the beginning, um, it was very apparent that our children in the neighborhood um, just needed love and attention. And I have said this for many years, and I still say it. If every child and teen had a mentor, someone that just came and spent time with them on a weekly basis, I think our neighborhoods, our cities would be a different place. So we're always looking for caring people to just come alongside of a child and hang out. And we have great on-ramps programs um, for you to do that from after-school summer camp, bike shop, sports programs. Gardens, urban really gardens. It does make a difference in their lives. They just need someone to hear them. They need to be known. They need um, someone to help them dream and hope. 
And then we also have the Front Porch Cafe. We employ, how many people? 12, 12 or so. Uh, mostly uh, people in recovery, ex-offenders, or people who come out of poverty. Uh, because our commitment was, again, remember this idea, not for white folks to come in, middle-class folks, we know how to organize and take over stuff, but instead to find the neighborhood talents and resources and get behind them and uplift them. So our cafe is run by Thomas, who's a, a guy from the community. Uh, our tutoring program is run by uh, Bobby Irwin, who uh, grew up in the neighborhood and actually was in a slow learner class and knows what it's like to be labeled. And uh, everything we do, you can come. We say come to our restaurant once because it's a social enterprise. Don't come back unless you had a good meal for a good price and you like the atmosphere. But instead of soup kitchens and things, we need to provide economic uplift and we need to provide ways for people to be employed. And so come to our restaurant on Grant and South Street, the front porch, and get a lunch or breakfast world Monday through Friday. Um, we can't tax or tithe our way out of the kind of economic problems we're in. The body of Christ has got to be generative. We've got to create new opportunities and ways for the kingdom of God, which is not a zero-sum game. It's not a, it's not a, uh, it's, it's like, like uh, it's wealth creation. And what Peter does with made the flourish, and I, I got to tell you this real quick. I didn't say this before, but you guys have an awesome pastor. I've been with this yeah, guy on a few trips. Yeah. <laughs> In all seriousness, I, I was telling my wife, I said, if I, if, we didn't have our ministry. If we were retired, I would probably come to this church because your pastor is one of the few guys I've met that truly has a pastor's heart. There are many, many young men today that are doing church planning and running churches. And I don't think that's our job is to, to, to go out and just... God said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I think our job is to seek first the kingdom outside the walls of the church and it's to make disciples if you make disciples, you'll end up with a church. If you plant a church, you may or may not end up with disciples, and that's my little bias there. But Peter, is, with Made to Flourish, is that network where we're asking the question of how do we, through the economy, work through vocation and submitting to God to begin to uplift and, and, and create opportunities for discipleship and wealth creation when most of us spend 40 to 60 hours a week on our jobs and we don't think of it as a spiritual time. Something's got to change there. So what Dwayne is referring to is, which is, uh, we are blessed to be part of a pastor's network together where we convene conversations all over the city to help people integrate their faith with their work, with the economy, and to think through the implications of our Christian faith for everyday life so that it's not a Sunday-only thing, but something that truly affects everything we do, whether it's relocating in a neighborhood or just being more faithful in the places that God has us for the majority of our time. And Peter is an able leader in that group. I'm very grateful. Thanks, Dwayne. Lisa, can you tell us maybe a story then of someone who has come to work at the Front Porch Cafe where you've seen how uh, providing an avenue for a job and productive employment has been a source of life transformation for someone? About yesterday. Yes. Um, About 15 years ago, um, Tony started coming to our church Um, She was in recovery. Um, She was in the process of um, working with Children's Services to gain her children back. Um, She was living at the Harvest Home, and so um, she was on um, that journey of just, you know, getting established and really recommitted to walking with the Lord. 
and we're going to fast forward real quick. Mm -hmm. um, 15 years now, she is getting married. We actually had a bridal shower for her yesterday, and we're real excited about her marriage to Thomas. Thomas also um, became part of South Street about 10 years ago. Um, he has his own story, his own journey of addiction recovery, and to see how... And he's the chef and the manager of the cafe, and Tony is the administrative assistant of Lisa, and so it's a workplace romance. I know those aren't supposed to happen, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> it has been really cool to see how God has grown them separately in each of their journeys. They've had many challenges and struggles and then grow their hearts together and their desire to do it God's way and their desire to honor him with their lives and their marriage has been really powerful. It has taken a long time and that is something that I think we learned quickly in our um, mission work at South Street is that transformation takes a long time in, in people and it's like baby steps. And so we then appreciate your long-term commitment to it because you have been at it for a very long time. Yes. Not be 20, 20 years this March, which I laughed when I was reading the Jacob story. It was 20 years away from the promised land. So we don't know what's next. We're not planning on going anywhere, but yeah, thanks. So we, we very much appreciate that. And people will now be able to come up and ask you more questions directly mm -hmm. once service is over. And, uh, but as Dwayne said, their restaurant is open Monday through Friday for breakfast or lunch. So if you work anywhere near downtown Akron or able to bring people there, you will go back because the food is good. But you don't charge enough. You no, I know. More I know. So that the, uh, you can keep making more money and employ more people. <laughs> That's um, right. But there's a lot of, therefore, ministries that they're connected to throughout the city okay. because of their proximity to where they are. And so we appreciate you. And so, Dwayne, thank you. I think most of you can tell how we were together at a conference in Grand Rapids. We were talking about Jacob. And when uh, Dwayne mentioned just how much that own passage is influential in his life, uh, just thank you for then letting me tag you in to come to, to preach and to share the word with us. So would you join me in giving them a round of applause? Thank you. And I'll say a prayer, and then our praise team will come back up. We'll conclude with a song, and then uh, their church starts at 1230, so they can't uh, stay forever. Um, but uh, this way, you'll, if you, if you want to be able to ask them something, please do it pretty quickly and understand if they have to get going. Uh, someone in their fellowship, it's going to be their last Sunday, right. so they don't want to miss it and bid them farewell when they uh, relocate out of the area. Right. So I'll pray, right. and then the praise team will come on up. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for the testimonies that we have just heard in Dwayne and Lisa's life and uh, the way you stirred their own hearts to um, be open to you and to desire ultimately to serve you with their lives, but also to know that sometimes we can get in our own way, sometimes we can try to force a situation and not rely upon you and not wait for you to open the doors that need to be opened, and so I thank you for their own testimony of how you've kept their marriage intact and how you've enable them to serve now for 20 years in one of the most difficult environments in our city and to do it with joy and to do it in a way that has only allowed them to draw closer to each other and to raise their kids well and to now have increasing opportunities in the neighborhood and in the community to help people who are struggling to have hope and to have a future, to give them a place where they can wrestle with you and in that wrestling to discover that you are the God who is there for them as well. And whatever their past is and whatever their story is, uh, that if they uh, become completely honest with it and surrender to you, 
that you're a God who is faithful to them and that there are many, many people who do not yet know the joy of knowing what it's like to be called your son and daughter. They, they haven't heard that story of love, that unconditional love and grace that you have. And so we pray for Duane and Lisa, for South Street Ministries, for what the work that they're doing, but also for all of us, that you would help us, any of us that are pretending and not being honest with who we are and what we've done, that you would help us to repent. And that for all of us in that repentance, that you would give us a strong sense of purpose and vision of where you want us to serve and how we can reach other people for your good and your glory. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.